Well, last week we were in Acts 21 and, and we saw the humility of Paul on full display as he reported back to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. You know, Paul modeled for his young disciples the life that God calls you and me to, a life that he preached about, but he didn't just preach it, he lived it. It was a life that gives God the glory for all the things He accomplishes through us. Now, I know, at least I believe, that nobody in this room would actually believe that the things they accomplished are because they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Or because they're so smart. Or because they're so powerful. Or because they're so wealthy. There's a lot of people in the world that look to their resources and they believe. I've actually had people that profess to be believers say this, well, I've worked hard for this. Let me tell you something. You can work hard your entire life and not get anything. It happens to a lot of people. Anything you have is by the grace of God. And we forget that. Because God has enabled some of us to walk through different journeys. And some of us have been exposed to wealth in our life. Some of us have been exposed to education in our life. Some of us has been exposed to different things. And we think it's our due. But none of us deserve any of it. We don't deserve the air we breathe. Now that's very countercultural to what people in this country say. But God in His mercy says, Jimmy, I'm going to give you an ability and a brain to think through a business plan and you're going to sell pool sticks for a living. And I'm going to bless it. Not because of Jimmy, but because of me. And I want my glory to be shown through that. And when we start to see the things that happen in our life as coming from God instead of us, it does bring about more of a humility that we don't deserve it. But when we think we do it, we can become prideful about our resources, about our assets, about our time, instead of seeing God as owning all of it. I've struggled with it. We all do. But Paul gave God the glory. He said when he gave an account in Acts 14, Acts 15, and here, he says, listen, God did this. I want to tell you what God did. And he calls us to do the same. Well, also we saw that God called Paul, and Paul preached to the disciples, and God calls you and me to submit to the authorities that he's appointed over us. Let me just say, no man in this room has independent authority over their life. You can make choices in your life, but we all function under some authority somewhere. And if we don't, spiritually, we're in trouble. Because God has ordained His church to be the governing authority for His people. That changed. It used to be the elders of Israel. And then it changed to the church. And the elders of the church 
are God's representatives as under-shepherds over his people. And the most important authority in the world for a believer is spiritual authority. Not government authority. Because spiritual authority overrides government authority when that government authority prohibits what Scripture says. The ultimate authority is right here. And so God has called His under-shepherds to be the elders and leaders of the church. Not a single pastor, not a single leader, but elders rule. That's the way Paul instructed people under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's the way for hundreds and thousands of years it's been done. Except we've seen a radical shift in our country. Now, I, I, I venture to say, if you ask most people in American churches whose authority they're under, they wouldn't know who to tell you. Spiritually. So, just because we have the independence to read the Bible freely on our own doesn't mean that we have the independence to govern on our own. And we always see that in God's history as He's unfolded. And so we see in Paul's life, he goes back to Jerusalem as a super apostle, big A, a big representative of the Most High God who suffered. Man, he's gone through all these things and he goes in there and the elders there tell him, listen, you got to do this, Paul. And it wasn't even something biblically mandated anymore. But Paul submitted himself to those elders because he had respect for God's authority. See, when we disrespect our spiritual authorities on earth, and for kids, it's appearance, or even adults, we, we honor, you know, we honor our parents even though as we grow older, we we're, you know, we get out and we get on our own, but we still honor our mother and father always. And boy, we see a radical shift in that in our country. But even as young teenagers, we see children who don't want to be under the authority of their parents because they see it as mom and dad, not as God's authority in their life. And so the church has suffered because it's not exercised that spiritual authority over people. And also we saw that Paul trusted in God's sovereign plan for the life he allotted him. He suffered. He knew he was going to suffer. And he said, this is what God has for me. And so when they were beating him last week, when we were reading about that, he's quiet. He's not claiming Roman status. He's not doing anything at that point because he knew that's what God wanted him to do at that point. Have you ever thought about that? If God wants you to take a beating, would you? Would you? Uh, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> but he trusted in God's plan. Agabus told him back in Caesarea, hey, they're going to bind you. And they did. And so he saw God's plan. Well, as I shared last week, Paul is one of, if not the best example, of the best surrendered man you can be to the Lordship of Jesus. He was human. He, he struggled, but he surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. And we see that in his life. And today, we're going to look at the first of six of Paul's defenses 
against the false charges against him. They made false charges that he's teaching against Judaism. He's teaching against the law. He's teaching against the temple. And he is going to defend himself six times. This is the first that we're going to look at today. And he's Paul. Paul is God's ambassador in chains. And what, what we see in Acts is three times, this is going to be one of them in today's text, but this is the second of three times in Acts where Paul's story, his testimony is shared. It's also shared in Galatians 1, Philippians 3, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Sir William Ramsey, who is a, a historian, said that Paul's story is the second leading apologetic in Christian history. Now, let that sink in for a minute. That Paul's story, his life story, his transformation, the change in his life, is the second leading apologetic for Christianity in history. You know what the first he says is? They couldn't find the body of Jesus. An apologetic is a is a defense of the gospel, or a, it's a it's it's basically you're you're using evidence to try to convince somebody that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did, and he you know he he's the redeemer, he's the Messiah, and so apologetic when you apologetics is when you basically defend the gospel using evidence. And Ramsey said Paul's life story is the second greatest piece of evidence we have in history. Because he was a guy who killed Christians. He persecuted Christians. And he had a life change. And became the chief writer of the New Testament. Which is really crazy if you stop and think about it. And God says in 1 Peter 3, guys, that we should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in us. And so, we're going to look at the hope that Paul had, what his life was like before it. It's really the outline today. It's two simple points. It's like a testimony. Paul's life before Christ, B.C., and then how Jesus rescued him, how he came into his life. We should all be able to share what our life was like before Christ and how He rescued us. That is what Paul does here. And we all should have that at the ready, so to speak, in case somebody says, hey, Bob, man, I watch you and you seem so different than everybody. Things just kind of go off your back. I mean, how do you, how do, you do that? Like the way that guy treated you and you just didn't bother you at all. You just kind of sloughed it off. Well, let me tell you how. I, w I didn't used to be like that. And you go into how you got rescued. But before we look at this in chapter 22, I want you to look at, for a second at Romans 15. Romans 15, Paul is praying and asking people to pray for him 
as he's about to do what we're going to see in Acts 22. Before he goes to Jerusalem, he asks the Roman believers to pray for him. And I want you to notice two things, but let's read it real quick. Over in um, Romans 15, and looking at verse 30, okay? Romans 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So here Paul is asking people to pray for him. And he asks for two things. He says, verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Why? Because he knows what's coming. He knows he's going to be persecuted. He knows he's going to suffer. So he asked the church, listen, pray that I may be delivered. Why do you think Paul wanted to be delivered, by the way? You think he just wanted to live to a ripe old age? Yes. For Paul, to live is Christ. That means the service of Christ. Not to enjoy life on earth more, Because for Paul, everywhere he went, (laughs) there was suffering awaiting him. (laughs) So, he says, pray for that. But he also says, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. What services he's talking about? Well, he's taking money from Greek, I'm sorry, from Gentile churches to Jerusalem. There was a possibility they would reject that and say, no, we don't want anything to do with Gentiles. He had Gentiles with him. There was a possibility they would reject them. And he's praying and asking these people, please pray. One, I would be delivered from these unbelieving Jews. Two, pray that my service would be acceptable to the people there. I find that very interesting that Paul is asking these people to pray that. And, and did we and we'll see today God answered the prayer. He did deliver him in a way that they probably didn't expect. So let's look at the text starting in uh, verse one of chapter 22. and we're going to go all the way through verse 16, okay? Starting in verse one, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who also who were there and bring them in bonds to be punished in Jerusalem. As I was on my way and I drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. These are the very words of God. God shows Paul's story. And why is Paul's story important? Why is our story important? Because our story should point to His story. Always. If we're His, our story, our life story should point to His story. And it's not just the big story of how He brought us, but we should, our lives should be filled with God's stories. How God intersected us. Anybody that's lived with uh, around me for any length of time, Brad, do I have a lot of stories? <laughs> There's a lot of God stories. Amos, there are a lot of God stories there? Yeah, of course there are. But do we struggle sometimes, even though we have all those stories? Of course we do. Don, was I struggling yesterday? Oh my goodness gracious. And who who was who was exhorting me? Not me. I, I, you know, I know, but I was. who was exhorting me oh, yesterday on the phone when, when you walked up? Your wife. My wife. And how was she doing that? Positively. Yeah, she was telling me all the times God had answered prayer in the past. <laughs> Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? You see, our story should be reflecting His story always. The God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob who loves His people. He's a good God. And I want you to think about this for a second. Because I can't say that I really considered this before I was going through this. Who adopts who adopts a child that murders his other children? Have you ever thought about that? I couldn't. I'm glad you're not God. <laughs> God's merciful. And Satan had a strategy. He goes, I'm going to use Paul's ambition for religion and he's going to be my chief antagonist against the church. I'll get him to wipe it out. And God says, not so fast. Not so fast. 
I'm going to take him and he's going to be my chief spokesman for the rest of the Bible. And so we see his life before Christ uh, was one of persecution. He persecuted the church. The very thing that's happening to him right now, he did. But notice how he starts. Brothers and fathers. You know who else started their defense like that? Who was accused of the same thing he was? Stephen. If you go back to Acts, the same words. Brothers and fathers. Terms of respect. Who's he talking to? Unbelieving Jews. Who was Stephen talking to? Unbelieving Jews. Who was in that audience that Stephen was talking to, by the way? Wow! Do you think that there's some people here that Paul's talking to that might be like Paul? That might end up coming to Christ? Yes. Paul never forgot what happened with Stephen. He talked about it later in life. He never forgot it. Can't blame him for not forgetting it. He helped kill Stephen. He was there listening to Stephen. And now, he has to have flashbacks. Oh my gosh. How did Stephen respond? Father, forgive them. Brothers and fathers, terms of respect. He gives a defense about the Gentiles. He's not, because he's accused of, of teaching against the law, teaching against Judaism, teaching against the temple, which he didn't do. And so he makes this defense. Two, he spoke, verse 2, he spoke in Hebrew dialect, the Aramaic. He started with his heritage and he spoke in their language. And so they, even though he was well-educated and he spoke other languages, he spoke in their dialect and they heard him and they got quiet. Because you got to remember what's going on. There is confusion, mass confusion going on. Remember when the centurion came down and the Chiliarch, the uh, tribune came down? They didn't know what was going on. They couldn't figure out what was going on. There was so much confusion. People were making allegations and some people didn't even know why they were there. But they were beating on Paul. And verse 3, Paul says, I am a Jew. I'm one of you. And he lays out his love for the law his identification with them. And then he goes into his testimony, his story. And you know, that's one of the unique things about Christianity and our faith. It's not just a set of truths we believe. It, it is an experience, a divine encounter that we have with the one true living God. And as believers, we have a story to tell people about how the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob comes into my life, calls me to Himself, no longer to be led by the things of the world. No other religion shares this kind of experience, by the way. It's not just new habits. I'm not learning mantras. I'm not learning the, the eightfold path. I'm not learning things to do necessarily. I become a new creation when... I meet the one true living God. That's what's different. And he says, I was born in Tarsus. Remember, Tarsus had the second largest library in the entire world at that point. It would, and Paul was a student. He says, I was brought up in this city. I, I grew up in Tarsus, 
But guys, I was brought up in Jerusalem. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis ever. And he's telling them all this stuff. I was zealous for God and for the law, just like you. I was a Pharisee. Guys, and we think of Pharisees as bad people, but they were the heroes of old Israel. They were the ones who stood firm and said, guys, we can't associate with pagans like this. We can't be with them and we got to get back to the law. The Pharisees were not necessarily as negative for them. And, and I think we write off all the Pharisees and not all of them were bad. They loved the law. A lot of them got saved. Tens of thousands of them got saved. But he says, verse 4, listen, I persecuted this way. He uses the way. You know, that was the, the slang term for people who followed Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul says, I persecuted this way. Why? Well, he saw Jesus as a threat to God's Word, the Torah, the wisdom books. He, he saw Jesus as a, a rogue religion. When I was in Israel uh, this past November, I was up at the wall and I was talking to this rabbi named Butch from New Jersey who was over there. And when I was talking to him, I asked him what he thought about Jesus. He said he teaches a rogue religion. It's not an offshoot of Judaism. It's a rogue religion. The same thing that Paul persecuted. And by the way, he went to Damascus 136 miles north of Jerusalem. That was a long way to go back then to go get some Christians. He got a writ from the... He was an emissary of the uh, Sanhedrin and from the high priest to go up there. He was a special emissary. He had the blessing and the authority of the Jewish leaders. And he's telling them all this. Now, what do you think is going through those people's minds as they're hearing this? Because remember, they're in confusion. All they know is some people are making these allegations. This guy hates Judaism. He doesn't like Jews. He's taking Greeks into the temple. And he's doing all this stuff. But there's a lot of confusion. And so all of a sudden, they're hearing this guy say, wait, I'm like you. I love the law. I persecuted Christians because of the way. And some of them are probably scratching their hair going, wait a minute, why are we beating this guy? What are we doing? And remember, there's, a, there's Roman guys right there too, right? And so they're going, oh, maybe, maybe we made a mistake. But Paul lays out, this is his life before Christ in verses 1-5. through five. But then he gets into how Jesus rescued him. Verse 6, he says, As I was on my way, and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. A great light for heaven. Over in Acts 26, it says it was brighter than the sun. Did you guys ever do the sun stare when you were a kid? You know, how long you could look up at the sun? <coughs> a stupid thing to do, but we did it, right? Because boys do stupid things. BB gun wars, sun stairs, all those things. You can't look at the sun that long. 
Your eyes just start watering. If you look at it and stare at it, you'll go blind, right? A friend of mine, uh, his brother was fascinated by welding. And so he was at a welding shop watching guys weld one day. And you know, when you weld, you got to wear that thick, protective, dark glass, right? So his brother thought he would be smart and look at the reflection of the welding instead of looking at it directly. The next day he was blind. You can't stare at it. So it's no wonder when that bright light came that Paul was blinded. It was Jesus in His glory. It wasn't Jesus with His glory set aside. It was Jesus in His glory. And what did Paul do when that happened? What does it say in verse 7? He fell to the ground. I, I just have to tell you, these testimonies you hear about people saying, oh, I was, I was in my bathroom shaving and you know, Jesus just appeared to me. And you're thinking, and, and, and I was just sitting there shaving, talking to Jesus. And the person, and, and the person interviewing him said, was he in his physical form? Yes, he was there in his physical form and I'm just shaving. Let me tell you, if Jesus appears to you and you don't fall on your face, it ain't the Jesus of the Bible. I can tell you that. If that Jesus appears to any one of us this side of heaven, we're going to be like the Apostle John, like dead men. We will be on our face. It says Paul fell to the ground. And he called Paul by name. Saul. Saul. Why are you persecuting my children? Is that what he said? Why are you persecuting me? Uh-oh. You mess with God's children, you mess with Him. That ought to strike the fear of God into all of us because I'm going to tell you right now, I can't imagine what went through Paul's brain at that moment. Because the bright light, the voice, Who are you, Lord? The guy this morning said, Well, why would he say Lord if he didn't know who he was? Well, Lord means it's curious, it's master. He was saying to somebody more powerful than him, Who are you? That's what he was saying. He didn't know who he was. And isn't that striking? Paul's doing all this religious work. Killing Christians because he thinks they're, they're an, a rogue offshoot. And he doesn't know God. He doesn't know God, guys. He doesn't know Him. Because if he doesn't know Jesus, he doesn't know God. He doesn't know Him. Jesus had been around for a while. He said, listen... No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. But He's doing all this work in the name of God. Do we have people today that claim they're doing work in the name of God that don't know God? You betcha. All over. And Paul was doing the same thing. And what did Jesus say? I love this. He goes, Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't say Jesus Messiah. He said Jesus of Nazareth. 
Nazareth was lowly. It was far from Jerusalem. It was really considered an insignificant town, pretty much. Remember what they said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Yes, Saul, something good did come from Nazareth. But don't miss this. Paul was opposed to the one who was his hope, his life, his very being. He spent his life in opposition to that one. Do we have people doing that today? Yeah. He was blinded. He was blinded by his pride, blinded by his ambition, and ultimately he became blinded by the glory of Christ because Christ came to him. Thank God for God's mercy. And what's interesting in verse 9, it says the people with Paul saw and they heard something, but it didn't make sense to them. Guys, that's what happens to the non-elect around Jesus. Let me take you over to Galatians 1 real quick. Galatians 1. Go to Galatians 1, verse 15. Listen to what Paul, when he's writing a Galatian church, says about his, his encounter with God. Verse 15. He says, But when He who had set me apart on the road to Damascus... Whoa, that's not what it says. It says, He who had set me apart before I was born. Wait, before I was born? That's right. Sorry. All you Arminians out there, you got to deal with that. I don't know how you deal with it, but I'm telling you, that's what it says right there in the text. It says, before I was born, He set me apart. Then IV says, who set me apart from my mother's womb. Yeah. And who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Who does the revealing? God does. Did He reveal Himself to Paul because Paul was seeking Him? Did He reveal Himself to Paul because Paul was just a good guy? No. He says he revealed his son to him in order that he might preach to the Gentiles. (laughs) Listen, when God gets you apart from yourself and he lets you see the veracity of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, the validity of Jesus, how far we are away from him, Only then can we begin to experience the cross and the forgiveness that He offers, really, through the power of the Spirit. The non-elect hear and see, but they don't understand. Listen, there were two thieves on the cross who heard and saw the exact same thing. One believed, one didn't. One elect, one non-elect. And you go, well, that isn't fair, Doug. Take it up with Him. I'm just telling you what Scripture says. I didn't write this book. I didn't put this together. That's what His Word says. Not what I made up. 
I'm just reading what His Word says. And then, I mean, it's just all God's grace. It's all God's grace. That should be encouraging to us. That means if you know somebody that's not walking with Christ, that they're not outside the scope of God's grace yet. Until they're in a box. They're not outside of His scope. His grace can touch anybody. Verse 10, Paul says, What shall I do? You know, this along with the other question he asked are really the two biggest questions that we have to wrestle with our entire life. Who are you, Lord? What shall I do? What do I do, God? I love this. You know what he does here? He goes, I'm not going to tell you, Paul. Or Saul, at this point. I'm not going to tell you. In fact... I'm going to let the church tell you. So you're going to go to Damascus being led by the hand and I'm going to let my people, the church, tell you now because now the church is the voice of God. Israel's no longer the voice of God. It's the church. And that's Ananias. Isn't that great? I mean, God could have told him on the road, listen, Paul, repent right now. Do it. Fall on your knees. Repent from your selfish, self-led ways and be baptized right now, showing the world that it's authentic. What happened on the inside is, is confirmed by what you're doing on the outside. And start walking with me. He could have told him that, but he didn't do that. He said, go to Damascus and you'll be told what to do. And I'm going to tell you through my servant Ananias. That's what he did. And what did he say he's going to tell him? All that has been appointed for you to do. Do you guys realize that there is something for each one of you to do if you're his? Things that have been appointed for you to do. Just like Paul. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I was formed in the womb. Or actually says before you were formed in the womb. What? Say what? I knew you. I knew you. And I didn't just know you. I had a plan for you. Right? I knew you before you were ever formed in the room. He knows each one of you before you ever were in your mom's womb. But don't miss the fact, even in Galatians 1, like I read a while ago, he said, before what? Before you were formed, before, before the world began. Ephesians 1 says the same thing. We were adopted and chosen in Him before when? The world began. God knew, guys, and I've shared my story with you before about my mom praying. My mom prayed that if she had a child, she was going to give that child to the Lord. And on May 7, 1967, as a five and a half year old boy, I walked down to the front of Eastview Baptist Church in Meridian, Mississippi, and I said, I trust Jesus. I want to follow Him. And three years later in 1970 at a vacation Bible school, I walked forward with a boy named Eddie Booth, and he and I walked forward because we both were sitting together and we felt 
like God was calling us to preach. And we walked forward in VBS and said, we feel called to preach the Gospel. We don't know where. We don't know how. But we want to say yes that we want to do this for God. Eddie Booth ended up in jail. Um, no, I don't know where Eddie is. I don't know. I haven't talked to Eddie in a long time, but I remember Eddie. Um, but I got in the Marine Corps, got in the FBI, and it wasn't until 1994, 24 years later, that that came to fruition. But God knew all along what He was going to do. Just like He knew with Paul. And like He knows with you what He wants to do. He has something appointed for us to do as His servants. And Ananias, we don't know anything else about Ananias except he was the one that God said, I want you to take Saul and go pray with him, encourage him, and tell him what he's going to do. And that's what he did. Verse 12 said he was a devout man according to the law. Even the Jews up in Damascus liked him. They respected him. And in verse 13, remember Paul, Saul had been blind for three days. What's the first words he hears from Ananias? Brother. Do you know how encouraging that must have been? Brother. Not wrath or punishment. Do you think that maybe during those three days he was wondering about wrath for all the people he'd beaten, killed, put in jail? Sure he did. Not wonder, He's wondering, why wouldn't God tell me what to do? I, I want to do what's right. And he goes there and he waits. And remember, we know from earlier passages, he was praying, he was praying, he was praying for three days. And Ananias comes in there and he says, brother, because instead of wrath and punishment, God gave him a family and forgiveness. Isn't that awesome? God took the chief persecutor of the church and flipped them and said, this is my guy. He's not yours, Satan. He's mine. Where's the three days mentioned? Uh, back in Paul's testimony in Acts 9, uh, where Paul, Paul, Luke tells this story. He was praying. And um, verse 14, Paul says, the God of our fathers... This is what Ananias says to him. The God of our fathers, which is a very Jewish statement, who's Paul speaking to now? He's speaking to a bunch of Jews. And so he, uh, he's relaying his story and he tailors it to the people that are listening. Because if you go look at how he talks to Herod over in Acts 26, it's a little bit different, right? And so... The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will. To see the righteous one. By the way, that's a qualification to be an apostle. That's why there's no apostles today. People use the term apostle in their name, but there is no big A apostles today. One of the qualifications, you had to see Jesus. You had to be a witness to His resurrection. Paul saw Him. And to hear a voice from His mouth. Why? Because God leads His people with His Word, not by sight. 
It requires no faith to be led by sight. But it requires faith to be led by the Word. And so He leads His people by His Word. And that's what He says here. He says, so that to hear a voice from His mouth. Paul has a new family, a new view of God, a new view of life. And he's been turned now from an enemy to an apostle in three days. Isn't that incredible? Three days. Apostles, it's three years before they received their great commission. Can God do that today? You betcha. If He comes into somebody's life, He can change them, turn them. And He says, verse 15, He was told, for you will be a witness of all you saw and heard. Guys, that's really what we're called to do is tell what we see and hear. That's our story. We're to be witnesses. You can't witness for what somebody else does. Derek, I can't be a witness for you. I can tell about your story and say my friend Derek, but really, when I'm witnessing what's going on in my life, if it happened, right, if it's true, they can't dispute it. I share my testimony with hundreds of people. Hundreds of people over the years. Nobody's ever disputed my testimony. I tell them about what happened in my life. What God did in my life. How I was living for myself, even though I was a believer. Listen, I came to faith as a five-year-old, but that didn't mean I was going to live a perfect life. And by the way, I was talking to Brad yesterday. I taught over on the west side and had a guy, never had this happen. Well, that's not true. I had it happen one other time. It was a different context. Who believes that once you become a believer, you don't sin anymore. He said he became a believer five years ago and hadn't sinned since. And I said, well, come with me. I'll take you and we'll see if you sin. Okay? I said, you haven't sinned in thought? No, it's not a sin to think something bad. Just a sin if you act on it. So I think Jesus would disagree with you. You go to Matthew 5, Matthew 6, I think you'd have some disagreement there. But guys, we're called to be a witness of what God's done in our life. Each one of us, of what we've seen, what we've heard, Listen, you don't have to be Billy Graham and be able to go preach up on a platform unless God appoints that for you. But some of the most faithful witnesses have been men in the marketplace. Men like Bud Toole. Bud Toole has spent more time sharing his story with young men. You know, not preaching up on a street corner. Brad, you're one of those guys that benefited from him, didn't you? How long ago was that? 25 years ago. He's been doing it. But Tom, you know, you've seen it. He, he has been a faithful witness, and that's what God calls us to be. To stand as His witnesses of the mystery of His will. That's what He said. He's appointed you to know His will. You know what His will is? That He has punished sin in Jesus. That's part of his, the mystery of His will. That He's punished sin in Jesus. That He offers you and me forgiveness for our sinful acts of rebellion. 
and that he is gathering his children prior to his return. That's his will. That's what we are called to be witnesses of. He's forgiven our sin. He's paid the penalty of our sin through Jesus. So there is justice because you can't have love without justice and you can't have justice without love. They have to they they coexist. And he's gathering a people. So he says in verse 16, "Hey, why do you wait? Get baptized and wash away your sins, calling on my name." By the way, the baptism is the outward expression of something that's taken place on the inside. The baptism does nothing to save him. It's an expression of what God's doing. He's saying, listen, do this. Jesus commanded us to be baptized. So it's an obedience issue that we show people we're all in with Him. And for Him to be baptized, man, He was all in. Because He's saying, okay, I'm buying into the way now. <laughs> the same way I was persecuting, now I'm on board. So as we think about these things in our life, Am I prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in me? Do I really have hope in me? What was my life like before Jesus? What was my life like? How did He rescue me? Take time to write it out. My mom had her testimony written out in two of her Bibles. She just wrote it, and it was beautiful to read. It was one of my most precious things I found in her possessions after we were going through was her testimony written out that I could read it. And at her memorial, I just read her testimony. I let her speak to the people about why they should trust God and have hope. What about you? Take time to write it out. Everybody should do that. I've written mine out probably 50, 60 times just to write it out. You know? And it doesn't just have to be, well, I was a kid and I trusted Christ and did this. Talk about God's stories in your life. Was there a time that you were walking in disobedience and God got your attention like me with my bird strike? And, and, and in the midst of that, His grace came shining through and you go, wow, in spite of that, He still loves me. That's the message of hope that we have. That's the message our world desperately needs, guys. So, write it out and be ready to give a defense. Be ready to give a defense. All right, Phil, will you close our time in prayer today?